Father, I ask, as always, your blessing on our congregation. You've blessed us immeasurably in so many ways. As a church that is young and and growing, Father, even under the midst of such difficult circumstances, we see your hand. We know that trial, Father, is in your purpose. And you tell us to count it joy when we face these sorts of trials, the ones we know personally that are in this room, unspoken, and the obvious public ones that we all are enduring together. Father, it's joy, not in its effect, but counted as such because, Father, we know that when we reach the eternal life that you have given us by faith in Jesus Christ, when we are with you and we are present in that future world, we will have the insight to look back and to understand your purposes in these things, things we cannot appreciate now. And when we do, we'll appreciate how they were good for us, how they changed us in a positive way, how they helped move your plan in our life along, and we will praise you then. So you tell us to praise you now. In ignorance, though, we know, Father, you are doing good things. Thank you, for Father, the opportunity to hear that in your word and to know it. Thank you for the teaching that you'll give us today through the, the story of our Lord's death on the cross. Help us understand it for all that it was meant to be for us and help us, Father, to live up to its expectations in holiness and in devotion to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's return to our verse-by-verse, hour-by-hour study of Jesus on the cross in our study of Matthew. This is the moment that our high priest is sacrificing himself on Passover, even as the high priest of Israel was in the temple on this same day, at this same hour, sacrificing a lamb on behalf of the nation of Israel. Remember, we've talked about this before. Every year at Passover, there would be one lamb brought into the temple before the altar. Its throat would be cut. Its blood would be drained. The flesh would be burned on the altar. And that one national Passover lamb would be the representative sacrifice for all the nation that day. But at this point, at this year, at this time, 9 a.m., the true once-for-all-time sacrifice of our Passover lamb, the Lamb of God, was being made at the same time, being nailed to a cross outside the city. And I know that few in that day could have understood the connection between Jesus' death outside the city of Golgotha and this lamb being sacrificed by the priest inside the temple. And certainly no one appreciated the significance of what was happening to Jesus. As we've already studied, his death on the cross involved several periods of time, 9 a.m. to noon, noon to 3 p.m., and then after he dies at 3, we have another period of time from 3 p.m. until sundown at 6. We're looking at each of these periods in turn. Uh, Last week, we finished our study of the first three hours from 9 a.m. to noon, And as you remember, we said that's the period of Jesus' suffering in which he is experiencing the wrath of men, which is a way of saying the consequences of sin. Remember, he experienced physical pain, we know that, but he also experienced emotional suffering. He also experienced psychological torment, mocking and the, the like. Those are things you and I suffer all the time, just as a natural consequence of our own sin. In fact, it's so constant, it's so normal We take it for granted. Jesus had no sin. He never experienced those things himself. He had no cause to. But being foreign to those consequences, he now takes them upon himself on our behalf. And during those three hours, what the writer of Hebrews says became true. 
that is in Hebrews 4.15. He says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin, and therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace as help in time of need. So Jesus experienced every kind of temptation we know, and I know when you hear that, or when you've heard it in the past, the natural thing you come to in your mind is, you know, the temptation to, to lust, or eat too much, or, you know, say the wrong thing, or th- those sorts of things. Yeah, that's true too. But you realize he's also tempted to avoid death. He's also tempted to avoid pain. He's also tempted to not go through with what he's experiencing, and yet Jesus never gave in to any temptation, as we routinely do, not even those to get down from the cross, which he had the power to do. And in that way, he qualifies himself to be our high priest. So that is our focus today. Our focus today is Jesus taking our place in death. And as I say that, I just want to preface this for anyone who cares, I guess, but you know, when you get up here and you have a chance to speak about Scripture, you, you, you move between teaching and preaching. Teaching is sort of the explaining of something. And then the preaching is when we say, here's what we should do with this, right? And in some weeks, there's more of teaching and preaching, and some weeks, there's more preaching than teaching. This is a week of teaching. There are some basic things here that many people don't understand, and you have to understand it. You have to understand it to understand why Jesus' death keeps you out of eternal torment. Understanding that is important. Wouldn't you agree? (laughs) And I think it preaches itself, so I don't think you need a lot of that from me. Let's just explain it. Let's just understand it today. So Jesus took the place of sinners in death, which means that he had to experience every aspect of death to serve as our substitute. And if you think about what we experience because of sin, the penalty of sin is not just physical death. The Bible says the penalty of sin involves more than the death of the body. It also involves the death of the spirit. And therefore, Jesus must experience both physical death and he must experience spiritual death as he hangs on that cross and makes himself a Passover sacrifice. And if you remember what I said last week, he experiences those in an order that is different than us. He will experience spiritual death first, and then he will experience physical death next. And that seems backwards, right? Because in our experience, it goes the other way around. Your body dies, then your spirit experiences death. And I'll talk more in a minute about what it means to experience spiritual death. But we hear it in that order, right? Physical, spiritual. Jesus is going to do it in an opposite way to meet God's purposes, and I'll explain why when we get there. But first, let's examine the two experiences as they happen. Let's just understand what they involved. And of course, as I mentioned, it begins with spiritual death. That moment begins at noon, and it's marked by darkness. Verse 45 is our next verse, and as I mentioned here several weeks ago, we're going very slowly right now because Matthew puts so much in each verse. Verse 45, now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. All right, one verse, but let's understand what this is meaning here. Matthew says darkness fell at the sixth hour. Remember, Matthew is using the Jewish system for reckoning time, time of day, and Jews started counting time of day at 6 a.m. when sunrise happened, so that's the first hour of the day, daytime. So the sixth hour is noon, 12 p.m. So we've reached that second three-hour period of the six hours Jesus hung alive on the cross. And Matthew says that at that moment, all the land was dark until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. 
So for three hours, total darkness. The word translated land there in verse 45, it's ye in Greek. It's actually G-E, but it's pronounced ye. But that's the word for earth, as in the planet. That's the Greek word for the planet. So the whole planet is dark for three hours, and Luke's account confirms. Luke says the whole earth. In fact, archaeologists have discovered ancient records in multiple ancient cultures of that time that confirm this supernatural result. The uh, Greek scholar Dionysus wrote of a strange darkness coming upon a city called Helopolis at that time. And another Greek scholar of the same time, Diogenes, who lived in Egypt, he reported a blackout of several hours, and he even offered an interesting explanation of the event. He said, quote, the solar darkness was such that either deity himself was suffering at the moment or sympathized with one who did. <laughs> and then there was a third writer of that same era in Turkey who, ter- who wrote about a day that turned to night at exactly the sixth hour, and stars were visible, and earthquakes shook the empire of Rome in various cities during that time. So remarkably, confirmed by out, you know, extra-biblical content, the entire planet is plunged into an unexpected, unexplainable blackout, lasting three hours. Now, of course, if the sun is black, what else is black? The moon. The moon gets its light off the sun, right? No sun in the day side of the earth, no moon in the night side of the earth. And if you've ever been outside when there's a, a new moon, where there's no light from the moon at all, it's pretty dark. The whole planet sees only stars for three hours. Now, why has God done this? Why has the earth been plunged into darkness? Because the Father has withdrawn his presence from the Son, the Son of God. This is the first and only time in all eternity that God the Son and God the Father are not in fellowship. Jesus now hangs for three hours separated from the love of the Father. A unique kind of suffering. And if you want evidence of this, of what I'm saying, look at the very next verse. Verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sakathani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he says near the ninth hour. That is the end of this three-hour period of separation from the Father. And he cries out asking God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that's a fulfillment of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 says that will be spoken by the Messiah. But notice how Matthew does something interesting here. He actually gives us the Aramaic that Jesus spoke before translating it. Now, everything Jesus said was probably Aramaic, with a, you know, some exceptions probably, but Aramaic was the common language of the day. So Jews could speak Hebrew, of course. Romans spoke Latin. But Aramaic was, or Greek was kind of the common, those are the common languages of everyday life. So Jesus speaks in Aramaic, right? Well, we know he has spoken in Aramaic throughout at different times. Why did Matthew want us to know the Aramaic this time before he translated it for us into Greek? Why? Well, there's two reasons. First, he wants us to understand exactly what Jesus said. He doesn't want us to assume that Matthew has, you know, translated it loosely. You need to know exactly what Jesus said because his choice of words here are revealing. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus refers to his Father as my God. The only time. Every other time that Jesus refers to Father in the second person directly, 
It's my father, my father. But in this moment, he says, my God. Jesus is not relating to the father in the same way that he used to right now. The intimacy that he once knew with the father is gone. The father has become distant. He is now just God. For three hours, he could not feel the father's presence. For the first time, he's separated from the love of the father. And during those three hours, he has experienced the ultimate consequence for sin, spiritual death, which is the wrath of God. And that is also a separation from the love of the Father. Those things are all synonyms. Spiritual death, the wrath of God, absence of the Father's presence. Sin has a lot of devastating consequences. I mean, anyone who's lived, of course, in this life knows that. We all have regrets. Or we've seen others do things wrong, and we have had that impact come upon us, right? But the ultimate consequence for sin is not in this life. The ultimate and final consequence for sin is to endure the wrath of God, which is manifest as an eternal separation from his love. The Bible calls this the second death because it is the death of the spirit that follows the death of the the body. Now, let me just be clear on what I mean when I say the death of the spirit or the second death. It is not a cessation of existence. It is not the annihilation of your spirit. It is a death in the sense of separation. Think about it. The first death, the one that your body goes through, that is not the end of you. That's not a cessation of you either. It is the separation of your spirit from your physical body. Likewise, the second death is your separation of your spirit from God, from God's presence. That's how to think about the word, okay? So the second death is the penalty that God has decreed for all who would end this life without having received the provision of Jesus as Savior. They will endure the second death, an eternity away from the love of God, and that is far worse than the death of the body. For those who have placed faith in Christ, the Father's wrath has been transferred from us to Jesus. And so he has to take our place. He takes our place in receiving the wrath of God from the Father, on the cross during these three hours, separated from the love of God. And near the end of that period of separation, near the ninth hour, Matthew says, Jesus is in such anguish from this separation, so distraught that his mind has moved from understanding the plan of God, because obviously he knew what was coming. His mind has moved from that to questioning, why have you forsaken me? Think about it. Why would he have to ask that question except that he is in such distress that now he can't even rationalize the experience that he's having, humanly speaking. He asked, Jesus, he asked the Father, why have you forsaken me? The Greek word that's translated there as forsaken, it's literally the way you would express the phrase to be left behind. So Jesus has been left behind by the Father for three hours, and in that moment he experiences the greatest suffering that he could ever know. You may remember in the garden when he was praying to the Father before all of this started, in Gethsemane. Remember the moment he's praying and he says, Father, if it be your will, could you take this cup away from me? You remember that phrase? You think about that at the time, you think, oh, he's he's worried about the physical pain of the cross. Well, yes, he is, I'm sure, but that's not the cup of God's wrath. The physical suffering on the cross is not the cup of God's wrath. It is the separation of God himself, that is, of Jesus and the Father being separate. That's the moment he was so worried about. This is the experience he was asking he, had, he could avoid if God's will would allow. And now as he's experiencing it, he's in anguish over it. 
And the world of darkness that has accompanied these three hours is God's way of communicating to the earth what was happening to Jesus on the cross. The Bible frequently uses light as a metaphor or a symbol of God's love or God's presence. You remember these words from the beginning of John's gospel? He says, John 1, 4, in Jesus, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. In verse nine he says, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. All right, so you know this example, right? It makes sense. Scripture throughout from the beginning of the Bible, from Genesis one, all the way to the end is talking about God and light as interchangeable. In fact, you may know that when this world is burned up and the new heavens and new earth arrive in its place, we're told in Revelation that there's no sun in that day, there's no sun in the sky, why? Because God dwelling among men, his presence gives the light to the world. Literally in that day, God's light is the light of the world. Right, so when you see God withdrawing the light from the earth, He does so to communicate, I have withdrawn my presence also. And Jesus felt that. Now, maybe at this point it's worth a couple of moments of clarification because you can let your mind kind of speculate here into some unhelpful places based on what we're learning. For example, I am not suggesting that when Jesus was separated from God the Father, he was any less God himself. That's not what you're supposed to conclude. He was just as much God separate from the Father as he was in union with the Father. And if that confuses you, join the club. I mean, on our best days, we can't fully understand the Trinity when they're all together, right? So what does it mean for God to be separated from God? We don't know. In fact, none of us will ever know what that's like. We will never experience that. Do you understand that? that we will never know what it's like. And I would even go a step further. Unbelievers have yet to know that if they're alive. Because the Bible says God extends, the phrase is common grace to everyone on earth at all times. Every human being in the course of everyday life is receiving grace from God, even those who deny he exists. The Bible says this, Luke 6.35, Jesus says, Love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. And in Matthew 5, 45, Jesus says that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven for he causes his son, this is the earth, the sun and the sky, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's common grace, which everyone takes for granted, right? The sun's gonna shine on me like it does the bad guys and the good guys the same, doesn't matter. But you know what, that's a conscious choice of God to show grace to all humanity. His presence, therefore, is evident even in those simple ways. Even the most ungodly person on earth is still experiencing the love of God at that level at the level of basic provision and goodness and common everyday life, which they take for granted. And you know, James says that every good thing comes from the Father of lights. Every good thing comes from above. So now, with that knowledge, try to imagine, if you can, an existence in which there is nothing good whatsoever from God's presence being withdrawn. It's an unimaginable experience. We've never experienced it. Certainly Jesus had never experienced it. And as I said earlier, you will never know it because these three hours of Jesus experiencing it for us takes the place of us ever having to know it if we've put our faith in Jesus Christ. 
Because you have heard and believed the gospel, the Bible assures you that you have overcome death, that is the second death, as Jesus himself promised in Revelation 2, 11, writing to the church, he said, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear the Spirit. That's Jesus' code language for saying, those who are ready to accept the truth of what I'm saying, receive it. And then he says, he who overcomes, meaning he who believes this, will not be hurt by the second death. That's our promise. All right, so going back to the text of Matthew. The first reason Matthew gives us Aramaic is so that you know that Jesus wasn't looking at the Father in the way that he used to. He sees him in a different way because he's separate from him. My God, my God. The second reason is to explain what follows next in the text because in verse 47, we find out that what Jesus said led to a misunderstanding among those who were present. Verse 47, some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, taking a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, well, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. So in Aramaic, remember, he said, Eli, Eli. That means, my God, my God. But when you say that fast or when you say it with a, a, a weak breath because you're hanging on a cross, Eli, Eli, might sound like Elijah, Elijah. So someone in the crowd said, oh, he's calling for Elijah to come save him. And that makes no sense. There's no promise in the Bible concerning Elijah doing any such thing. And they knew that, right? So they're looking at that thinking, why is this guy calling for Elijah? He must be delirious. Someone get him a drink. Literally. He's, he's, he's near death. He's uh, uh, suffering from dehydration. Somebody get him a drink. And so they offer him a, a, a drink. That's how they're understanding this. But look at the second part of that passage, verse 49. But, the rest of them said, meaning this. Some are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't, don't, don't give him a drink, let's wait and see if Elijah saves him. Is that cruel or what? In other words, this crowd is not giving Jesus a drink out of pity. Some of them are trying to keep him alive long enough to find out if Elijah shows up. And others are saying, no, 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 let him suffer some more and that might bring Elijah. They're like kids poking at a dying animal with a stick just to see what comes next. You know, Jesus is utterly alone. He has no one to help him. We studied this in an earlier week, right? No one to sympathize with him. But even the little help that he did receive was not intended for his benefit. It was there to extend his suffering so they could, you know, witness the damage more, figure out what was going to happen. Like, you, you know, watching, as I said last week, watching a, a car accident on the side of the road, you know, it's just gawking. And the irony of all of this is that the sin that they're committing against him even now is the very reason he was hanging on the cross for them, for that sin, if they would receive him. So for three hours on the cross, Jesus has experienced spiritual death in our place. He had no sin of his own. And then at the end of that three hours, at the ninth hour, his spiritual suffering comes to an end. And at exactly 3 p.m., the ninth hour, the darkness ends as Matthew says, it was dark until nine, ninth hour. And at that moment, the fellowship between the Father and the Son is restored. And in a sense, you could call this like spiritual resurrection. I'm not saying his spirit went anywhere. I'm saying in the, in the simple sense that it's a return from spiritual death to spiritual unification. And in that general way, let's call it a, a spiritual resurrection. But here's the point. At that moment, the work of paying for the sin debt that we all have, 
That work was done. And Jesus says so in John 19, 30. Now, Matthew doesn't record this. But in John, Matthew, John's gospel, John 19, 30, at this same very moment, at the ninth hour, this is what we're told. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, in, Jesus, in, in Greek, Jesus only spoke a single Greek word there. It's te telestai. Te telestai is the word for it is finished. And that's important to know because that word, te telestai, is a Greek accounting term. It was used in accounting. And it literally means paid in full. If they had had a rubber stamp in that day, that's what they would have stamped on a bill. Tell telestai. Okay? And Jesus says the wrath for sin that God pours out has now been received by him and therefore God the Father is fully appeased, fully satisfied. Christ has done all the work required. It is finished. The sin debt that he came to pay was now paid in full. No additional payment is needed. No more work is required. There's nothing you can add to a debt that's already been paid in full. Done. And he's still alive. He will die almost soon, immediately after that. But he said that statement before he was dead physically. Because the physical death of Christ on the cross was not a part of the payment. Hear me out. The physical death of Christ was necessary. The physical death of Christ was part of the plan of redemption, yes. But it is not a part of the payment. He can't have resurrection without physical death. And resurrection would be the way by which he would demonstrate to the world the proof of his claims. But the time he experienced on the cross in spiritual death is the moment that he was paying for our debt. We're going to study the physical death next. But before we do that, you may be wondering, well, wait a minute. If the spiritual death on the cross, those three hours, is the payment for our sin, why was it only three hours? You know, if we die in our sins, unsaved, then we spend an eternity separated from the love of God in torment. So why does Jesus only have to spend three hours to pay for our eternity if we went to the grave without faith? Well, First, you need to understand, unbelievers spend an eternity separated from the love of God because they are sinful for eternity. You understand what I'm saying? The only way you cease being sinful is if you are born again by by the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. Your spirit becomes new again and sinless. Romans chapter 6 says that because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you're given a new sinless spirit at the moment of faith. Of course, you have a sinful body still. That's why you still sin. And that's Romans 7. Romans chapter 6 is the consequence of faith for your spirit, a perfect spirit. Romans chapter 7 is the consequences of your faith for your body, and that is war. The consequence of having a sinless spirit in a sinful body is war. The fight that we all know so well. Wretched man that I am, I do the things that I do not wish to do, I do not do the things I wish to do, Who will free me from this body of death? Well, praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ, right? As he said. So the point is this. The point is this. If you go to your grave without Christ, you take a sinful spirit to the grave and and thereafter forevermore into eternity. And because the opportunity to know Christ and to be saved, to be born again, ends at the death of the body because there is no opportunity after that, If you go into the eternal state in a sinful nature, then 
you are forever sinful, you are forever then condemned, you are forever then separated from the love of God. Jesus was not like that. Jesus had no sin of his own. He became sin on our behalf, but he had no sin of his own, and therefore he had no need to suffer for an eternity. His suffering was a propitiation. Remember that term? Propitiation means to appease someone or something, to satisfy the demands of something or someone. The father is the one who demands justice for sin. You have to appease the father, and the father gets to determine what will appease him. And he has determined that his sinless son, suffering on a cross for three hours, separated from the love of the Father, that payment will appease the wrath of God. It is sufficient in the eyes of the Father that if you accept it, he will consider your debt paid in full. You say, well, why isn't it four hours? Why isn't it two hours? Because the Father determined what it was. He is the author and perfecter of your salvation. He is the one who decided that three hours for his son would be sufficient to pay your sin debt. It's not an equivocation. It's not so so much time for so much time, so much time for so much sin. No, the point is a payment which the Father will accept. And Jesus doesn't need to spend any longer than three hours or any time for that matter because he has no sin of his own. So once the Father had been appeased and the debt had been paid, then Jesus' suffering could end. And he will accept that payment in place of you spending an eternity in suffering. Friends, that is the lifetime deal you're looking for. Literally, a deal of a lifetime, right? That is a pretty good deal. Not for Jesus, necessarily, but it was for us. So that's why, at the end of the ninth hour, he says, it is finished. And with the debt paid in full, his suffering can now come to an end. And as John said, and now Matthew verse 50 says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So Jesus cries out in a loud voice and he gives up his spirit. Now Matthew does not record what Jesus said in that moment, but Luke tells us that in the moment he's doing this, that voice, that loud cry he makes is this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So the precise timing of his death, 3 p.m., the ninth hour, that timing combined with those words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, he's Father again now. He's not God anymore up there, where are you? He's Father, here's my spirit. They're in communion again, right? And when he said in John's gospel, no one takes my life, but I lay it down. I have authority from my Father to lay it down, and if I have authority to lay it down, I have authority to take it up again, this command I received from my Father. This is the moment he was talking about. No one killed Jesus. I've read some interesting articles from people who, with, with fully good intention, I know, tried to explain, medically speaking, how Jesus died. What was the cause of death? Almost like a coroner's report. They're missing the point. Literally, Jesus did not die of crucifixion. The cause of his death was not due to any physical wounds whatsoever. We all die, our bodies all die as a result of some biological process, some kind of breakdown, But the Bible says the ultimate cause of death, you know, if you go further back in the chain of events, why does our biology break down? Why do we get sick? Why don't we live forever? That question, which is very philosophical for some, it's actually biblical, but that question has its own answer. The answer is sin. The wages of sin is death. You die because you sin, because God said so. And Jesus, having no sin, Though he was in a wounded state, he would have lived forever. 
He was not under the curse that we were under. But he became a curse, Paul says in Galatians. He took that curse upon himself, which is to say he picks the moment of his death. He decides when it's done. It is finished. Okay, we don't have to be here any longer. The plan of God has now been accomplished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he dies as a result of that decision. No one took his life at 3 p.m. Now, next time we come back, we'll be looking at what follows that death moment from 3 p.m. till 6 p.m. But today we need to understand the significance of the physical death, right? Because everyone came in this room, I'm pretty sure most people came in this room assuming that when Jesus died physically on the cross, that was our payment. Now you see that's not the case. The payment, it is finished, we're three hours of separation. And that makes sense when you think about it because that's our payment, right? You go to the grave without Christ, it's not just that your body dies, it's what's following that that is the payment, that is, that is the consequence That's where the real payment needed to be made. Jesus made that in three hours. And we receive it by faith. But then there's still the body dying. Why? And why spirit first, then body? Well, let's begin by setting aside some bad assumptions about what the death accomplished. All right, let's let's get rid of all the bad stuff first. First, some assume that, as I mentioned, the physical death is part of the payment for sin. But we just rule that out. It's not part of the payment for sin. It is important to the plan of redemption, but not as a payment. And then there's some who would assume that, okay, it wasn't so much the death itself, it's what comes after the death, the three days in the grave. Have you ever heard anybody imagine with you that Jesus went down to hell, and while he was down in hell, he's suffering and burning for our sake in hell? Or maybe you've assumed that yourself. That's not true. None of that happened, all right? Romans tells us that God's wrath for sin was satisfied by his death alone, and not by any time in hell or afterward. Romans 5, 9 says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What reconciled you to God? His death. And that's a reference to his spiritual death as well as his eventual physical death, that whole process, but not his enduring of punishment in a place of torment somewhere in the earth. That is not ever written in Scripture. That's not a part of the plan. And to be clear, in fact, the Scriptures say Jesus never experienced any torment or suffering or even bodily decay as a result of his death. Psalm 16.9, Messianic Psalm, it says, therefore my heart is glad and my Glory rejoices, my flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. That's the Son speaking to the Father. So our debt was paid in full before he died, and his time in the grave is not a punishment period, it's for a different purpose altogether. So what is his purpose in dying? Where is the body, uh, what is the point of the body being in the grave and the soul being away for, uh, for three days? Well, first and foremost, it fulfills Scripture. It fulfills Scripture. You, you want to see what God said would happen, happen so that you know you're looking at the right person as Messiah. That was number one reason. But number two reason is that in dying and staying dead for three days, the resurrection is now possible. Right? Makes sense, obviously, right? You can't resurrect unless you died. And the resurrection is everything because the resurrection is proof to all of us that the claims Jesus made are true. It's a fundamental dividing line. You can say anything. Talk is cheap. There has been countless number of people, gurus of whatever 
flavor, who have come into this world claiming to know something about who the deity of the world is and how to find him and how to be saved from penalty of sin, etc., etc., how to find nirvana, how to be enlightened, how to, whatever they say, right? There's a, there's a new one of these every day. And they all die. And they stay dead. And let me tell you, if the person you're looking to for answers about how to overcome death can't do it for themselves, they got nothing. So the resurrection from the... I mean, that's the existential question of life. I mean, I'm not going to get too philosophical on you here, but that's the fundamental question. There's no one on this planet who should go to their grave without answering that question. What happens after I die? What is life about? What is death about? I mean, we all know it. We all know it's coming, and most of us pretend it's not, if we don't know Jesus, certainly, because it's too scary to even contemplate. Just live for the moment. Plan for the foreseeable future. But they should not live that way, right? It's crazy. It's crazy. You should all be thinking, what happens when I die? That should be the only question on your mind until you get the answer, right? But people don't, they don't want to deal with it. That question is why we're all alive. What happens when I'm not? And... For those who say, here's your answer, if they can't come back from death, they didn't have the answer. Jesus came back from death. That testimony, and not just because we have four books who say it, Paul says that in, in 1 Corinthians 15, there were hundreds and even thousands of people who could testify in that day. And we're talking about in a time when Paul was alive, about 20, 25 years after Jesus' resurrection, Paul was writing letters Two people saying, you know there are hundreds and thousands of people who can testify to having seen Christ. The witnesses were there. That evidence changes everything. So Jesus went to the grave, stayed dead three days. By the way, the reason it was three days, interestingly, is because in Jewish uh, mythology, teaching, if you will, of that time, there was a belief that someone could spontaneously resume life in a time period less than three days. It's sort of like the stories you hear today. Someone gets sent to the morgue and then they're poking on him and he wakes up. You're like, who messed this up, right? Well, if it can happen to us, right, it could happen to them where people are presumed dead. They didn't know whether they were dead or alive. They treat them as dead and then they turn out to not have been dead and they were you know, standing up later and everyone's amazed. Well, because of that tendency, the Jewish rabbis had concluded that unless someone was dead a full three days, you couldn't be sure they were actually dead. So Jesus stayed in the grave three days so that no one could come later and say, oh, he wasn't really dead. That's why three days. And then the resurrection gave proof to everything he said about who he was and his power of life over death, his power to grant us eternal life. So his death is absolutely necessary. That's why Paul says in Romans 10 that if you believe that Jesus not only is the Son of God but that he died and was resurrected, that element is important because it's your confidence to know that his story about what comes after death is true. So it's not a payment, it's a proof. It's not part of his plan or his need to make up for your sin. It's his way to convince you that his payment is worth accepting. That's its purpose. And there's another reason why he died physically. Peter tells us, and Paul tells us, that he accomplished something in those three days that needed to be accomplished while he was away from his body. Paul says that the Old Testament saints, now we're talking here about people who believed in the promise of a Messiah, they just happened to live prior to Jesus' coming. Those people who believed that a promised Messiah would come for them and put their faith in that promise 
When they died, they didn't go into heaven because Jesus had not yet paid for their sin. They couldn't enter into the presence of the Father because the sacrifice for their sin had not yet been made. Where do they go then? The Bible tells us they go to a place of comfort in the center of the earth called Sheol. Sheol is a place that has two sides to it according to Luke chapter 16. One side is comfort, one side is torment. Those who died without faith went to torment. Those who died with faith went to comfort, both in the center of the earth waiting for Jesus. And Paul says in Ephesians that when Jesus' spirit was separated from his body for those three days, his spirit descended into the inner parts of the earth and set free these captives, these Old Testament believers who were waiting for him, who knew he would come one day but didn't know who he was and when that would be. He now comes down to proclaim to them, I am the one you have been waiting for, and I am here to set you free. And as Jesus came out of that place after three days, Paul says he set free those captives. He released them from that temporary place of holding, and because of the sacrifice having been made on the cross, he could now welcome them into the presence of the Father when Jesus ascended. And then Peter says he also made proclamation to the other side, to the side of torment, the side we call hell or Hades. Now, that was not an opportunity for faith. That was not some second chance. That was not Jesus saying, are you sure you don't want to believe in me? Remember, you're saved by faith, and faith is not sight. When they saw Jesus down there, faith is no longer possible because you can't believe in something you see. It's now self-evident. Faith comes before sight. And so once Jesus presents himself, you get no credit for acknowledging the obvious. Oh, you're Jesus. Now, how'd you figure that out? You get credit, if you will, You are saved, that is, by having faith in a promise of something that cannot yet be seen. And so when he goes down there, he pronounces to them not opportunity for salvation, but rather that the time has passed. And the point of that is to confirm that the promised Messiah has been fulfilled as promised despite their unbelief. It is a testimony against them. There's two reasons why you give testimony. One is to convert and one is to convict And they're being convicted by him in that respect. And they remained there when he left. All right, so we understand his death spiritually came as a function of his separation from the Father, three hours on the cross. That was our payment. And thank the Lord we were not going to make that payment. He made it for us. And then his physical death followed so that he could then fulfill the rest of the plan of God in setting free the captives and proclaiming the truth to those in prison and to prove the truth of his claims when he resurrected. But why in that order? Well, the answer comes from understanding that the Bible calls Jesus our second Adam. The second Adam. And in that sense, Jesus is restarting the human race. Let me just remind you of what the first Adam did. In the garden, God told Adam this. If you eat of this fruit, this forbidden fruit, he says, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, we know he ate. And yet we know Adam lived 930 years after that. So what happened to God's promise? He said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. He didn't die on that day, or did he? How did he die that day? Spiritually, he died spiritually. That is, he was separated, in a sense, from God's fellowship. Remember, God comes into the garden soon after that. Adam hides. He feels vulnerable. He has to keep covering his body. He feels this instinctive sense that he's vulnerable before God. Didn't feel that way before, now suddenly he feels that way. His spirit had changed. He felt instinctively something was different. You remember in that story it says God was walking in the garden, which is euphemism, God doesn't have feet. 
But the point is, Adam heard something and hid. Why do you think God made noise before he walked into that garden that day? Adam, I'm coming, I'm coming. You hear me? I'm coming. Why? Because if God had come into the presence of sin, he would have had to judge it. As mercy to Adam, he's giving Adam a heads up. You might want to hide, because I know what you've done. God was intentionally provoking in Adam that instinctive desire to withdraw because he needed to until such time as a sacrifice would be made to cover that sin. So God said, in the day you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. Adam died. So Adam's death process started with what? Spiritual death and followed with physical death. He's the first Adam. Now, as a result of what Adam did, he changed his nature. And God had already pronounced in the story of the Genesis account of the creation of the world. He, he pronounced that what something is is what they would create. Reproduce after your own kind. So whatever you are is what you make. And that's self-evident, right? We make people that look like us. But you know what? It's more than just physical. You're also passing on your spiritual nature. And I don't mean that you can pass on faith. I'm saying the nature you receive from Adam is the nature you pass on to the one that comes from you. So what Adam became, he passed on, which is why everybody born of Adam is born into a nature of sin. So in effect, you're already spiritually dead when you're born. Paul says we are dead in our trespasses and sins before we come to faith. So believe it or not, your spiritual death came before your physical death too, but you've been resurrected spiritually by faith in Jesus Christ. You've been born again. You have a new spirit. So as Jesus came to set that standard, to establish that new path for us, to be the new Adam, he takes our place in doing what the first Adam did. That is, he takes the penalty of spiritual death and then he takes the penalty of physical death so that now in our rebirth through him, we don't have to pay those penalties, he's done it for us. And we're reborn in his nature. We come into this world through our faith now in a nature that is traced to Jesus. I've heard it said this way and I think it's true. Your genealogy, when it was once traced all the way back to Adam, he cut that and you're now stuck to Jesus. He's our Adam. Your genealogy goes only to him thankfully. That's what he was doing. He was taking our place. He was restarting the human race in spiritual terms. He was being our second Adam. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, also in Christ all will be made alive. All right, that's the teaching for today. Not a lot of preaching, and you may be saying amen to that, but this is about learning today. And now the question becomes for all of us, where are we taking what we learned? I don't know the answer for each of you. I know what it meant for me. I know how it lets me think differently about Jesus' time on the cross and also who I am now in him. Take that away today. Dwell on it. Think about it. And let God show you how to use it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, we thank you for Jesus on the cross. The unimaginable experience of him separated from you, Father, is something we can't understand and nor will we ever experience and we're so thankful for that. I ask, Lord, that you would show us in a, a day to come, in a new way, how we are to use what we've learned, how we are to teach someone else, how we are to live it out in a better way. We don't come, Father, simply to have our head filled with knowledge, but, Father, we know that knowledge will change us and it is, in fact, a necessary step in the process of serving you, that we would be renewed in our minds first so that we might be changed 
in our lives from that. Give us that understanding of how we change. And send us home from here safe, Father, and bring us back in days to come. We pray this in Jesus' name.